Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. It should probably come as no surprise that I love Halloween. It's my favorite time of year because, and again, this should come as no shocker if you've been listening to this show, I love spooky things. When I was a kid, I loved watching scary movies or The Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown on TV. I loved dressing up and trick-or-treating. And of course, I loved getting all the candy. But if there's one thing we all know that's pretty much an unwritten rule of Halloween... It's that you always need to check your candy before you dig in. This hasn't always been the case, though. There have been urban legends surrounding razor blades being hidden in apples, or needles hidden in candy bars, or other deadly tricks being hidden in children's Halloween candy around for decades. The urban legends of tainted Halloween candy all stem from a 1970 op-ed in the New York Times in which the author discussed the possibility that a stranger might attempt to harm your children through tainted Halloween treats. It was here the author, Judy Clemserud, suggested such novel ideas as a plump red apple being used as the perfect vehicle to hide a razor blade inside. Two days after the article was published, a two-year-old boy from Detroit died from consuming heroin. Early news reports published claims by the boy's uncle that he had died from eating poison trick-or-treat candy. Although it turned out the little boy had gotten into a baggie of heroin the uncle had carelessly left out in his home. In 1975, Newsweek published a rather dubious article that purported there had been dozens of incidents over the previous few decades of children being injured or even killed by consuming Halloween candy tricked out with razor blades, sewing needles, and shards of glass put there by sick and twisted adults. Then in 1983, the popular nationally syndicated column, Ask Ann Landers, published its own warning about so-called twisted strangers out to harm children through tainted candy. During the 1980s, several communities across the U.S. responded to these stories by banning trick-or-treating altogether, and instead replacing it with carefully monitored fall festivals while many other metropolitan area hospitals began offering free x-rays of bags of Halloween candy. In 1988, there actually was one real reported case of a needle found inserted in an x-rayed candy bar, although no injuries were reported. In 1964, a New York housewife named Helen Feel was arrested for handing out arsenic-laced ant buttons, dog biscuits, and steel wool pads as a bizarre prank to area children. Again, no injuries were reported, and she ended up receiving a suspended sentence for child endangerment. But in truth, the stories of children being murdered by trick-or-treat candy is, for the most part, an urban myth. In 1985, a comprehensive study showed that over the previous three decades, there was only one single incident of a child dying from poisoned Halloween candy. 
And that story revealed a dark truth far different and in many ways more disturbing than the rumors about strangers poisoning unsuspecting kids. It was a rainy Halloween night in Deer Park, Texas in 1974. The rain didn't keep the children home, though. Many kids were still out in force going from door to door trick-or-treating. Among them were 8-year-old Timothy O'Brien and his 5-year-old sister Elizabeth. Their father, Ronald Clark O'Brien, was taking them around their suburban neighborhood. Also with them that night was their neighbor, Jim Bates, and his young son. They came upon a house with all the lights switched off, which usually implies that the homeowners aren't home, or they aren't handing out candy. But the children tried knocking anyway. There was no answer. Soon the children grew impatient and ran off to find another house. Jim Bates followed, but Ronald lingered behind. Ronald caught up with the others a few minutes later and he had good news. He told them it turned out the people at that house were home after all, and look what they gave him. He produced a handful of pixie sticks, paper tubes full of sour powdered candy. He'd gotten one for each of the children, and even had an extra that he handed to a ten-year-old boy they knew from church that they bumped into on the way home. Later that night, Ronald allowed his son Timothy to consume one of his treats before bed. Timothy went for the pixie stick, but the powdered sugar got stuck in the tube so his dad helped him out by dislodging it. Timothy complained that the candy tasted terrible, so Ronald poured his son a glass of Kool-Aid to wash away the bad taste. Within an hour, Timothy was dead. Timothy was rushed to the local hospital, but it was far too late. The county prosecutor immediately suspected foul play, so he called the chief medical examiner and described the situation over the phone. The M.E. asked what Timothy's breath smelled like. A call down to the morgue revealed that the boy's mouth smelled of almonds, a sure sign of cyanide poisoning. An autopsy proved the M.E.'s hunch correct. Timothy had consumed enough cyanide to kill two people. They tested the pixie stick and determined that the top two inches of the tube had been packed full of poison. Police officers scrambled and managed to gather up all the remaining candy from the other children. Luckily, none of them had eaten any of the tainted candy. One of the boys was found in bed clutching the pixie stick. Whoever had poisoned the candy had sealed the tubes up with staples, and that little boy hadn't had the finger strength to undo the staple. Police had Ronald lead them back to the neighborhood where they'd been trick-or-treating so that he could show them the house where he'd gotten the poison candy. But Ronald was stumped and couldn't remember exactly where the house was. He said he never got a good look at the person's face who had given him the candy either because all their lights were out. This story didn't sit well with investigators. You'd think that a father whose son had just been murdered would have racked his brain trying to come up with some more concrete information than he was able to provide. A few days later, police investigators came around and questioned Ronald again, this time harder than before. On this occasion, Ronald managed to finally come up with some more details, including the location of the house. Now, in many cases, this would have been the end of it. Police had their man, after all. Only this individual had an alibi for Halloween night. He had been working, and several of his co-workers backed this up by confirming he'd been there. 
The man's wife and daughter had been home, but they'd run out of candy earlier that evening and turned all the lights out. And they had never handed out pixie sticks. Meanwhile, Ronald was acting increasingly strange. Now, each of us grieved differently, so in a case like this, it's impossible to say exactly how we'd act under the same circumstances. Yet in Ronald's case, police thought he was becoming increasingly erratic. Ronald wrote a song about Timothy joining Jesus in heaven, and he was reportedly furious when his relatives wouldn't stay up late to watch a performance of the song being broadcast on television. Over the next few days, police detectives began to look at Ronald more closely. They learned that in January, Ronald had taken out life insurance policies in the amount of $10,000 on each of his children. Then he added on an additional $20,000 each in September. They also found out that he owed more than $100,000 in debts. And it seemed particularly damning when they learned Ronald had phoned the insurance company the morning after his son's death to find out how soon he could collect the payout. Investigators obtained a search warrant of Ronald's home and found a pair of scissors containing a plastic residue that appeared similar to that found on the pixie sticks. Ronald O'Brien was arrested and brought in for questioning. Police learned that Ronald had been attending classes at the local community college, and he'd actually asked his professors strange questions about whether or not cyanide was the most deadly poison there was. They located a witness from a Houston chemical company who testified that a man had come in to buy some cyanide, but left after being told he'd have to purchase at least five pounds of the substance. The witness couldn't positively identify Ronald O'Brien, but he did recall that the man who came in to see him had been wearing a blue or beige smock, like a doctor would wear. Ronald O'Brien worked as an optician and wore a similar smock for his uniform. The case against Ronald O'Brien was entirely circumstantial. This was decades before DNA began being used for criminal investigation, so there was no concrete evidence that proved Ronald O'Brien had murdered his son. Ronald O'Brien entered a not-guilty plea. He swore that the true perpetrator was still at large. Public sentiment quickly turned against him. Former friends, family members, and co-workers all testified against him. It took jurors just 46 minutes to convict on one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. Within another hour, the sentence was reached. Death by electric chair. Ronald O'Brien continued to swear his innocence and his lawyers filed appeal after appeal for several years. Finally, on March 31, 1984, O'Brien had exhausted every tool at his disposal for survival. By now, the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled the electric chair was a cruel and unusual punishment. So his execution was to be carried out, ironically enough, by lethal injection. In other words, he was poisoned. Before he died, Ronald O'Brien prayed for forgiveness. He went to his grave professing his innocence. In his final statement, he said, We as human beings do make mistakes and errors. This execution is one of those wrongs. But it doesn't mean the whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I forgive all. I do mean all those who have been involved in my death. Ronald O'Brien was pronounced dead at 12.48 a.m. Outside the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, more than 300 people gathered awaiting the news that the man who killed Halloween, as he had come to be known, was dead. Many of those people threw candy and shouted, 
Trick or Treat. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening to this Halloween mini-episode, and thanks to each and every one of you for listening. This was originally one of my patron-exclusive mini-episodes, but I couldn't let my favorite holiday pass by without sharing a Halloween treat with everyone. If you're not one of my Patreon supporters already, if you sign up now, you can find a growing library of mini-episodes much like this one. They're like my regular-length episodes, only fun size. In fact, by the time this episode comes out, I'll have another all-new mini-episode up on Patreon. Thanks again for tuning in, and Happy Halloween. Halloween.